You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. First Peter is where we are. First Peter. So you want to flip there and uh, have your Bible open and ready to go. First Peter. Okay, so just to, to make sure that you're in the context here, this is sermon number four in First Peter. So just to remind you of, of the, the ground that we've covered so far. First nine or so verses of First Peter. What, what's going on here? The context is Peter is writing into a group of suffering saints. They are people who are experiencing these various trials that we talked about last week in verse six. It's coming in various shapes and sizes. It's diverse and in varying degrees that they are suffering people. And to those suffering people, Peter has some things he's trying to say to them. He's pastoring them. And and into this group of people that are suffering, the first thing he tells them in verse 1 and 2 is that you are elect exiles. Remember that? He's solidifying their identity in the gospel and and what they have and who they are because of the work of Jesus for them. So he says, you're elect exiles. You're elect. This is your relationship to God. You're precious to God. You're chosen by God. You've been adopted into the family of God. But but you're also exiles. This is who you are in the world. That because you're um, accepted by God, you're rejected by the world. Because you're in alignment with God, you're maligned by the world. Um, This is your relationship to God, elect, relationship to the world, exile. But but then he goes on in verses 3 through 9, and and essentially he's showing them the present reality of the gospel, what what they currently have right now. Do you remember that in verse 3? According to his great mercy, God's great mercy, God has caused them to be born again to a living hope. Peter is saying that there is hope like in, in... like the present time, in the middle of this suffering. It's not just hope for the future. There's actually hope now. It's a living hope. It's a hope that affects the way you feel and the way you respond and the way you think, even in the midst of your your current suffering. That there can be a rejoicing even in the midst of great sorrow. Right? So, so this is where, this is where um, Peter's been. I, I like how um, Paul Tripp, he says that in these first couple of, chi- or first couple of verses in, in Peter, First Peter, that, that Peter is reacquainting them to the now-isms of the gospel. What, what you currently have like right now in the midst of your trial and tragedy, sorrow and suffering, that, this living hope that you have. But before he goes on, before he keeps moving, and kind of gets to the body of the letter, he's got one more thing in this introduction, in this, introduction this, this verses basically one through 12 that kind of form this beginning phrase, this beginning paragraph of his letter. He's got one more thing he wants to do with them before, before he moves on. So Go here, verse 10. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. This is the last thing he wants to do kind of in this introductory material that he's laying out to encourage them with. 10 through 12 goes like this. Concerning this salvation, that's our theme. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels longed to look. Kind of an interesting phrase. Okay, so so he finishes this opening little section, and you see the first phrase there in verse 10? Concerning this salvation. It's like Paul, or it's like Peter is saying, okay, we've talked about salvation. In in verse 5, we talked about it. It's it's ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 9, we talked about it. The outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. But now in verse 10 through 12, we're going to stop for a second. We're going to push the pause button, and we're going to sit in this idea of salvation. We're going to sit here, and we're going to consider it. That word concerning, you you might could translate it, consider it. 
Think about it. Ponder it. You, you need to stop and you need to think about this thing. And I, I think if you were to ask Peter, well, what are you going at in these three verses? Like, what's the point you're trying to get at in, in 10 through 12? I think he would say something like this. Here's what I'm trying to do for you, readers of this, like readers back then and current readers. I'm trying to get you to consider your salvation so that you will live constantly celebrating it, so so that you will be awestruck at the fact that God has saved you. Have you just thought about that for a second? If you're you're a, a child of God in here, have you just stopped and thought about you're saved? God has saved you. This is what God has done for you. I mean, does that, does that stir up some awe in you, some wonder in you, some wow in you at this great work of God called salvation? See, see, there's this logic to what Peter's doing here. He's saying you need to stop and consider it so you can celebrate it. You need to examine it. You need to know it. You need to understand it. You need to feel it. There needs to be a weight of this on you. So you need to examine it so you can exalt it. You need to ponder this thing so you can praise and proclaim this thing. Okay, so that's Peter's aim. So that's our aim this morning. So so if I had an aim for you, a hope for you, it's that God might use these words. He would breathe life into these words and into you through them. He he would breathe this life into you that you would have this, this wonder and this awe and this, I can't believe I'm saved. I can't believe God has done this. And that would cause in you a good celebration of this, this great act of God called salvation. Okay, so, so that's where we're going. So here's where we'll start. Salvation and its significance. Salvation and its significance. So you see it right off the, the get-go. Peter is saying concerning this salvation. So stop about this. Consider its significance. Stop and ponder this. Examine this. Salvation and its significance. Um, th- this week I read a story about a pastor who had an, an old man in his church. Um, the man was in the hospital. The man knew he was about to die. So, so he knew he was going to the hospital and he knew he would not make it out of the hospital. One of those moments. And that's it, always an interesting moment as a pastor because you never know what you're going to walk into. Um, I, I've heard it said that that's when um, Satan rattles his saber the loudest. It's in those moments, right? And, and so he walks into the room, this man that knows he's about to die, And the first thing the man says is, the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Now, that just kind of gives me chills thinking about that moment, you know? I mean, those moments when when you know that that maybe you've got days, maybe maybe minutes, just moments away from, from death, that has a way of clearing the fog, doesn't it? Of cutting through the clutter of life, of really kind of condensing life down to what's central. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Do you feel the weight of that? The greatest thing in the world. Now listen to, what, listen to the implications of that. If you believe that, here's what that means. That the greatest thing in the world is not to live to 90. The greatest thing in the world is not a big house, a nice car. The greatest thing in the world is not your health. The greatest thing in the world is not your comfort. The greatest thing in the world is not a trouble-free, suffering-free life. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. That means the greatest thing in the world is God. Life with God, eternity with God. Do you feel the weight of that? This is what he's concerning this salvation. This is the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Now, I'm praying that God would give us 
a weight around that word, salvation. He would produce in us an awe at that, a wonder at that. So, so let's define it. What, what is salvation? Salvation defined goes like this. Salvation means rescue or deliver. If you can picture yourself in a threatening situation, like you might die situation, and the strong arm of a deliverer rescues you, that that's salvation. That's what it is. Okay, now when you think of the word salvation in the Bible, the word salvation is the broadest language, the broadest word used to describe all that you have and all that you are because of the work of Jesus. It's the broadest word. Okay, so, so think about this when I say it's the broadest word. It covers all of these massive, it's like this umbrella that fits over all of these great gospel realities, these great gospel words like election, regeneration, redemption, reconciliation, justification, propitiation, adoption, forgiveness, faith, grace, repentance, conversion, sanctification, this, this process of becoming like Christ, glorification, what we have when we see Christ face to face. All of these words reflect pieces and parts of salvation. It's this broad biblical language that that condenses all of those things down into a word. This is salvation. Okay, now when you see the word saved in the Bible or salvation, it can be used in one of three tenses. And we've talked about this several times, but it may be used like in the past tense, the word saved. Like it's it's God delivering you from, from the past penalty of sin. But it can also be used in the present tense, what God is currently doing in your life, how God is currently saving you. And it can also be used in the future tense, what God will one day do for you. So it's got this, this broad dimension, past, present, and future, covering all of these great gospel themes. Okay, this is salvation, the broadest language used in the Bible to describe what you have and what you are. And this is why it's so significant. It's because salvation is universally needed. It's universally needed. Like, what if I just ask you the question? Do you need to be saved? Do you need to be saved? Now, okay, the question is not, do you think you need to be saved? I guess it isn't a matter of opinion, right? It's not a matter of, well, maybe, maybe not. It's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell, eternity with God or eternity away from God. And the Bible sounds a reoccurring warning all throughout its pages, Genesis 3 on, that you need salvation. You need deliverance. You need to be rescued. You need that. I need that. You need that. We need that. Our church needs that. Universal warning. We need to be saved. So the question becomes, saved from what? Like, what what, what are we saved from? Okay, let's let um, 1 Peter help us with that answer. Um, Look in chapter 2. Well, what are we saved from? What do we need deliverance from? What do we need rescue from? Why is it that it's a universal need? First Peter 2, look at verse 24. It says this. He, Jesus himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Okay, so so he's saying that he bore your sins in his body on the cross. This is what Jesus did for you. So here's the implication of that. If that's what Jesus did for you, it means you need to be delivered from your sin. You need to be rescued from your sin. I I think the greatest um, picture of this in the Bible is in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, where you've got the people of Israel, they are in bondage. You remember this? They're enslaved to the people of of Egypt. They've got a tyrant king, a cruel master, and and you've got an oppressive kind of a a situation set up, a a cruel master that's, that's oppressing them, beating them, wronging them. They're killing their infants. I mean, it is a bad situation. And listen, that, that is the picture of sin. 
And do you remember what happens? Um, They cry out to God and and God delivers them. He breaks them free from the bondage of this ruler. And listen, when you think about sin, like that Old Testament picture is just a shadow of a New Testament reality. That that you are enslaved to sin, that you're born in, just like the, the people of Israel, enslaved in Egypt. When you are born, you are born into this cruel kingdom. You are born under this tyrant of sin that that has enslaved you, is oppressing you, that is beating you. This is the picture. And we need to be broken free from that. And so God sends Jesus, his son, to break us free from the dominion of sin. This is how Jesus is announced in Matthew chapter 1, talking to Mary. Um, Mary, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a boy. And you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save people from their sins. You know that you need to be saved from your sins? that it is a ruthless master for you. It's a cruel king for you. It's enslaved you. And your only hope with sin is Jesus, right? But but it's not just sin. Look at um, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. So we need to be saved from sin, but it's more than just sin. For Christ also suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. And then it says this, that he might bring us to God. So there is a separation that's happened because of our sin. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And then flip over to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. What we're saved from, that's the question we're trying to answer here. Not just sin, but, but there's more. 1 Peter four seventeen. For For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with God, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Okay, so so think about this. Here's what Peter is saying. That that there is a problem with with you and God. That that The problem is you're alienated from God, that you're separated from God, that there needs to be a reconciliation that takes place. In the language of Romans 5, it means that we are enemies of God. Do you see yourself that way when you're born? That when you're born, you're born as an enemy of God. This is Ephesians 2 that you're born as an object of God's wrath, that, that when we're born, it's, it's like we um, have, the, the battle lines have been drawn. Here's God on one side. Here's the other army over here. And we look at God and look at the other army and we say, you know what? I'm going to take this army. I like my chances over here. This is what's happened to us. This is why we're objects of wrath. Okay, so, so hear this. God's fury, his anger, his wrath over sin is directed at that army. I, I love the story of R.C. Sproul. He's walking down um, through a college campus. R.C. Sproul, pastor, one of the, the best modern day theologians. He's walking through a college campus and a, and a guy comes up to him and asks him the question, do you need to be saved? And R.C. looks back at him and says, saved from what? And there was just this moment of kind of almost like a deer in the headlights, like I haven't thought of that question yet. I don't know. I just know you need to be saved. And here's the ultimate, like the ultimate answer to the from what question. You need to be saved from God. That your sin has separated you from God. It's made you an enemy of God, an object of wrath of God. And you need to be saved from God, from the judgment of God, from the fury of God over sin, from the wrath of God over your sin. You need to be saved from God. Now, that is not like saying you need to be saved from me. You need to be saved from your wife, from your husband. It's saying you need to be saved from God. Like the guy who created everything. All-powerful God. You need to be saved from that God. But, but it, there's even more. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. So it's not just sin, and it's not just God. I mean, those, those are huge, but there's even more. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. 
Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay, so it's not just safe from sin. It's not just safe from God, but it's also, you need to be safe from Satan, right? I mean, Peter uses the language of a roaring lion. A lion is an apex predator. There's nothing that, that preys on a lion, right? And he's saying, this is what Satan is. An apex predator that that his goal is to devour you, to decimate you, to destroy you. His goal is to take as many people to hell with him as possible. And and here's the problem. Ephesians 2 says we are willfully following Satan when we're born. We look at Satan like he's he's not an apex predator, but, but like he's a house pet, right? Like he's a house cat. He's not that. Okay, he's this roaring lion, and God is saying through Peter, you need to be saved from him. So you need to be saved from sin. You need to be saved from God's wrath. You need to be saved from Satan. This is why it's a universal need for you, for me, for us. We all need to be saved, but it's not just being saved from something. It's being saved for something. So so what do you need to be saved for? Like we need to be saved for a relationship with God. See, it's not just God saving you from sin. It's God saving you to him. It's not just God saving you from his fury and wrath. It's God saving you to a relationship with him, to an enjoyment of him. So you're not just saved from something, you're saved to something. You can live a thousand days and never appreciate air, oxygen, until someone holds you under the water for a minute too long. And all you can think about is is breaking to the surface and breathing. And the moment you break out of the surface and take your first breath, doesn't air take on a whole different flavor? See, you can live a thousand days and not appreciate that you're living until you almost die. You, You can live a thousand weekends with your wife and until she's gone for one, you don't know that you're doomed without her, right? And the same is true with with salvation. There will not be a wonder and an awe at the fact that you are saved until you see the seriousness of what you're saved from and the wonder of what you're saved to. It will never strike this chord of, I can't believe this, until you see that. Until you sit in the seriousness of what God has done and saved you from and the wonder the amazement at what God has saved you to. Can, can you feel that? Man, may God press that down on us. Salvation is summed up in a word. Salvation is summed up in a word. It's not just a universal need. It's, it's summed up in a word. I, I love how um, Peter goes about talking about salvation. Okay, now and it's almost like he uses it interchangeably with, with another word in this text. Look, look at verse 10 concerning this salvation. Okay, so salvation is what the topic here. This is what we're talking about. Salvation, broad terms, this is the picture that we're going after, the theme we're going after. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about, remember, salvation is the theme. That's what we're talking about. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. It's like he's using salvation and grace interchangeably. If you want to condense down and boil down salvation into a word, into one word, here it is, grace. That's the word, grace. That that God would come after rebellious people that are ill-deserving and lavish all of his blessings on them. 
Okay, now, do you see that grace implies that you're ill-deserving? See, grace is not just God coming to people that don't deserve something. That's not it. Like, to put this in, in human terms, like, that would be coming, God coming to, to undeserving people would be like you um, coming across a random homeless guy, you giving them $10,000 so they can have a down payment for a house. I mean, that's a great thing, but that is not the full biblical picture of grace. That, that would be God coming to an undeserving person. Here is God coming to an ill-deserving person, a person that not only doesn't deserve it, has done everything he can to kind of disqualify himself from it. To put that in human terms, God coming to an ill-deserving person would, would be um, a homeless man breaking into your house, robbing everything that you have and killing your family. You searching that guy out, finding him, and rather than killing him, you embrace him. Rather than slaying him, you save him. You you adopt him into your family. You bestow all of your family's blessings on him. You give him a room in your house. That's grace. Do you see the difference in that? Grace is God coming to an ill-deserving person. You. A a person that, that slayed his son by your sin. God comes to you, rather than slaying you, he saves you, adopts you in, forgives you, embraces you, brings you into the family. All the family benefits are now yours. That's grace. This is salvation. It's summed up in this word of God coming towards you, pursuing you, ill-deserving people, disqualified people. And this is the thing that separates Christianity from everything else. It is God coming to you, not you going to God. Christianity is primarily marked by God's pursuit of you, not your pursuit of God. It's primarily marked by what God has done for you, not what you do for God. See, Christianity is not primarily you believe in God, you trust in God, you have faith. It's not primarily that. It is primarily God has come for you in the person of Jesus to save you. That's grace. Salvation summed up in this one word, this one act of God coming after ill-deserving people. Salvation is is, is through one Savior. Salvation has one Savior. This is Acts 4.12. Salvation is in no one else. There's only one name under heaven by which men can be saved. It's only through Jesus. It's not through you being a good guy. It's not through you doing good things. It is through the grace of God expressed in Jesus. That's the only way you can be saved. And if you're on the fringes, on the fringes, kind of peripheral edge of this thing, kind of looking in, questioning all this, man, there's an invitation in this passage to see Jesus, to savor Jesus, the grace of God expressed through Jesus coming after you. His perfect life lived in place of your imperfect life. His undeserving death in place of your deserved death rose again on the third day to save you, to, to pay for your sin. There's this beautiful invitation in this passage to express faith in that of what God has done for you so that you can be saved. There's this beautiful picture, this beautiful invitation that's expressed here. Salvation is through one Savior. And, and lastly, we'll, we'll, we'll jump on salvation and its worth. Salvation and its worth. And I want you to see this in this passage. Four things that Peter is saying, this is how significant, this is how precious salvation is. We'll start in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they did two things with it. It says, they searched and they inquired. 
If you want to see how precious your salvation is, it's worth, here's one indication of it. The prophets longed to see it. They, lo- they searched for it. They inquired of it. Have you ever um, been in one of those just seasons of life where when you wake up, you're thinking about something, like this one thing, you're obsessed with it. You can't stop thinking about it. You live throughout the day. You can't stop thinking about it. You, you go to sleep that night and you're still thinking about it. You wake up the next day and you just do it all over again. You ever been in one of those moments? This is the, the feel of this passage. Peter's saying, these prophets, they searched for this thing. They inquired. They were obsessed with this thing. They, they were long to see this. They, they, for all these things that they spoke about Jesus, this coming Savior, they longed with all of their heart just to get a glimpse of that. that they longed to see it. Look in verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ, it's the Holy Spirit, that's God, what spirit or, time, or what person or time that God, the Spirit of Christ, in them was indicating when he, God, the Spirit of Christ, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And I just think this is real interesting just to consider that salvation was not God's plan B. That, that before, um, before he ever spoke creation into existence, that the plot line for salvation was already created. That, that it wasn't God looking at the world and saying, oh no, they sinned, now what are we going to do? It was God saying, there's sin, I know it, and here's salvation to redeem it. That before the foundation of the world, that God had plotted and planned your salvation. That God had plotted and planned to come after the rebellious, the ill-deserving, and to rescue them. To rescue you, to rescue me, to rescue us. Isn't that amazing to think about? Before time began, that was in the heart of God. He predicted it. Thirdly, verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. If you want to know how precious and how worth, the worth of your you if you want to get a glimpse of that, here's what you can look at. The sufferings of Jesus. The sufferings of Jesus secured your salvation. If you want to know how precious your salvation is, look at the cross where God slaughtered his innocent son for you in your place, bearing all of your shame, all of your sin. That's how precious your salvation is. That God would send his innocent son to be killed for it. I I think that there is a, a moment that happens when the gospel is preached, that there is this feel in us of, okay, so all I have to do is believe All I have to do is trust and treasure, put my faith in that. That's all I have to do. That feels cheap. And I I just want to make sure that you see this. Salvation is not cheap. It's free, but it is not cheap. It came at the cost of Jesus's life. That's how precious it is. And number four, verse 12. "It It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which the angels, I love this phrase, things into which the angels longed to look. Now, isn't that something? That the angels longed to look at at the salvation thing playing out. We have three kids in our home. Um, One is three, one is one, and one is a newborn. Pray for us, right? Yeah. And so one of our nightly routines is as we're putting Hannah, who is three, and Caleb, who is one, as we're putting them to bed, one of the things that we, we do is read the Jesus Storybook Bible to them. So we'll, we'll break open the Bible, grab a story, and we'll just read it to them. 
right? And so, um, and it's so interesting. This happened just the other night. I'm sitting in the bed and typically Caleb is like laying on me, just waiting for the pictures to show up in the Bible. And, but Hannah, she's kind of getting some of this down. She's remembering it. She knows the stories, all that. And so we just kind of went through the roll call. I'm trying to figure out what story I'm going to read her. And so I just start kind of toward the beginning and see, see which one we're going to go with. And so um, I said, do you want to do the story of Noah? We can go that route. And she said, no, no. Um, how about uh, David and Goliath? We can go that one. No, no. H- how about Daniel? No. And finally I said, why not? What's wrong with those, right? I like those stories. And, and here was her response. It's, I already know those. I already know those. And, and here's the thing. I think if you're not careful when you think about your salvation, your knee-jerk response is, yeah, I already know that one. Okay, now think about this. Peter is saying the angels, I, I'm just going to assume that they're not dumb, right? The angels long to look at this. The, okay, that word long would be the same word for like obsession. They were obsessed with looking at it. They couldn't think about anything but looking at this. They love salvation. It's like a bottomless pit for them that they can look at forever and love it. That, that word longing, I, maybe you could... Um, fit in some English words like look at, gaze. I love this word, behold. That they love beholding salvation. It's like, have you ever been in that moment where it's midnight and you're looking at a fire and it just is so intriguing just to sit there and stare at it. That this is the, this is the feeling you're getting here. That they just love to sit and stare at salvation playing itself out. Okay, now this is the turn for this morning. The, the question is, do we have that same view of salvation? I mean, isn't it interesting that, that we so often overlook what the angels long to look at? I mean, isn't that an interesting thing? That, that we can become the three-year-old that already knows that? And, and so I think this, this, this text poses this question of, do you long to look at this? Do you celebrate in that? Does, that? does that arise in you and bring to the surface some awe and some wonder at this great work of God called salvation? Does it do that to you? Okay, now, now and we're going to kind of finish with, with trying to answer this question. If you were to say, okay, I want that. Like I'm game for that. I would love for salvation to kind of be that. So, so, so what, what do I do? How, how do I kind of walk in that direction? How do I start to learn and start to see salvation like that? Where I long to look at it, I'm obsessed with it. But where do I go to find it like that? Answer. Salvation is seen in the scriptures. Salvation is seen in the scriptures. Okay, so I want to do a little bit of work here with you just to make sure that when you think about what the Bible is about, that you think the right thing. That salvation is seen in the scriptures. Okay, now, now follow with me in verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, if you want to sum the scriptures up, that's the sum of the scriptures. It concerns this salvation. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, okay, those were Old Testament men that were speaking for God. That's Isaiah, that's Jeremiah, that's, that's all these Old Testament guys, right? The prophets. Okay, now, now look at what the prophets are doing, what, what they're talking about, what they're proclaiming. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Do you see what he's saying? That I think a lot of times we have this, this dichotomy that the New Testament is about this and the Old Testament is about that. Peter is saying that's not right. 
The whole Bible is about the same thing. It's about the grace that was to be yours. It's about salvation. That's the whole Bible. Not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament. This is what the prophets were talking about. He's saying that the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. The prophets are preaching and proclaiming salvation. Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. So he's saying that they knew, like take Isaiah when he's speaking 700 years before the birth of Jesus. He's speaking Isaiah 53. Okay. It's got so much Jesus in it that some people call it the fifth gospel, right? So so he's talking about this suffering servant acquainted with grief and sorrow. He's talking about all of that. And he knows when he's preaching that 700 years before the birth of Jesus, that he's speaking this message to a group of people, but he's also speaking this message for you thousands of years later that would read it on the other side of the cross. That, That he knew that it was bigger than his time and place. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you. And listen to what they said has been announced to you. Through those who preached what? The good news, grace, salvation. This is what they're preaching to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Here's what Peter is saying. The scriptures center on the story of salvation. Okay, do you you see that? That from, from Genesis to Revelation, this is what the Bible is about. That this is the thing that ties the Bible together. That the Bible is about God redeeming a people. It's not about your marriage. It's not about how to become a better this or that. It's about God redeeming a people. That is the primary point of the Bible. This is what the Bible is about. This is the scarlet thread that brings the whole Bible together. God redeeming a people through his son, Jesus. God rescuing rebellious people. This is the storyline of the Bible. It's what the, 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 the scriptures center on. Okay, now let's take this one step further. The, the story of salvation, okay, the scriptures are about the story of salvation. The story of salvation, it centers on a savior, Jesus Okay, so here's what that means. That from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about salvation. And from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about a savior. His name is Jesus, who has come to redeem us. From Genesis to Revelation, here's what you need to be looking for when you read the Bible. God saving through Jesus. That he's the hero. Now, this is what, this is what Peter is saying. Look at verse 10 again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, search and inquired carefully. For what? what? What are they doing? They're inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ, of Jesus. He's saying this is what the prophets were talking about. This is what the Bible is talking about. This is what Genesis is about. This is what Exodus is about. This is what Hosea is about. This is what your Bible is about. God saving through Jesus. Okay, now this is not the way most people read the Bible. And because of that, it's why the Bible is not very entertaining and not very exhilarating and not very exciting to people. Here's how most people read the Bible. Most people read the Bible through a moralistic lens. So so we read the Bible like this. There's good people and there's bad people. You need to to not do what the bad people do and you need to do what the good people do. Okay, so so you need to go to the Bible and you're gonna figure out what do I need to do? What do I need to do in my marriage? What do I need to do in my finances? What do I need to do? And no doubt the Bible is gonna speak to that. But that is not the point of the Bible. 
The point of the Bible is to show you what God has done for you. And until you start to read it that way, it will never be energizing for you. It will always be a drag for you. Exodus is no fun to read until you see this is a story. This is a shadow of what God has done for you in Jesus. Are we seeing that? This is what the Bible is about. God saving, redeeming through his Savior, his son, Jesus. Okay, now Jesus agrees with me in this, right? I mean, the, the, the reason I say this is because Jesus says this. Do you remember on the road, or this was after um, his, his death and resurrection, you've got a people walking on the road to Emmaus. And you've got these two disciples, they've left Jerusalem. They are downcast, they're discouraged because Jesus has just died. Okay, now on this road, Jesus appears to them. And uh, he, he kind of starts poking at them and probing them a little bit. Why, why are you downcast? What's your problem? And they're like, have you been under a rock? I mean, what, what is your deal, right? Have you not heard that our chief priests, our leaders, they just killed Jesus? Okay, that's our problem right there. We thought he was going to save everyone, but he just got killed. And listen to what Jesus says to him. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. This is Luke 24 and then 26, 27. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's a way of saying all the Old Testament. Beginning with the Old Testament. Moses and all the prophets. Beginning there, listen to what he did. It says, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You see what he just said? The whole Bible is about me. The whole Bible is about, there's one hero. It's not David, it's not Abraham, it's not Isaac, it's Jesus. That's the hero of the Bible. Okay, now I think it's easy for us to look at, let's say prophets and say, okay, I get Isaiah 53. I get how that is about Jesus. He's a suffering servant, acquainted with sorrows by his, his, his wounds. Where he, I get that. But how in the world is Leviticus about Jesus, right? How in the world is the law about Jesus? How is all that about Jesus? Let me help you with some words. This is going to be a long quote, so, so hang in here with me and just sit and, and, and savor this. Just, just hear this. It's, I'm going to post it on the city this week so you don't have to worry about writing anything down. This is uh, by a guy named Mark Driscoll he, on a book on the Old Testament. And listen to how he describes all the Bible, everything in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus. He says it this way. We also see, okay, so not just in prophets, uh, prophecies, but, but in all the Old Testament, we also see people in the Old Testament who perform various kinds of service analogous to the service that Jesus performed perfectly. Unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ is the last Adam who passed his test in a garden and in doing so imputed his righteousness or gave his righteousness to us to overcome the sin given to us through the first sin of Adam. Jesus is the true and better Abel. So when you read the story of Abel, you need to start seeing some Jesus in there. He's the true and better Abel, who, although he was innocent, was slain and whose blood cries out for our acquittal. When Abraham left his father and home, he was doing the same thing that Jesus would do when he left heaven. When Isaac carried his own wood and laid his life down to be sacrificed at the hand of his father, Abraham, he was showing us what Jesus would later do. Jesus is the greater jo uh, Jacob, who wrestled with God in Gethsemane, Though wounded and limping, he walked away from his grave blessed. Jesus is the greater Joseph who serves at the right hand of God the King, extends forgiveness and provision to, to those of us who have betrayed him and uses his power to save us in loving reconciliation. 
Jesus is greater than Moses and that he stands as a mediator between us and God. Like Job, innocent Jesus suffered and was uh, tormented by the devil so that God might be glorified while his dumb friends were of no help or encouragement. I love that. Jesus is, the great, is, is a greater king than David who, was, who has slain our great giants of Satan, sin, and death. Although in the eyes of the world, he was certain to face a crushing defeat at their hands. Jesus is, a, is greater than Jonah in that he spent three days in the grave and not just in a fish to save a multitude even greater than Nineveh. Furthermore, when Boaz redeemed Ruth and brought her and, her and her despised people into community with God's people, he was showing what Jesus would do to redeem his bride, the church, from, uh, from the nations of the earth. When Nehemiah rebuilt Jerusalem, he was doing something similar to Jesus, who is building for us a new Jerusalem as our eternal home. When Hosea married an unfaithful, whoring wife, whom he continued to pursue in love, he was showing us the heart of Jesus, who does the same for his unfaithful bride, the church. Finally, when God's people sought to keep their homes free from filth through various Old Testament rituals, they were showing that their lives were filled with the filth of sin and they desperately needed Jesus to come and make them clean. Do you see how all the Bible is about Jesus? So, so here's, the, here's the ending plea from me to you. In light of that, savor salvation by reading the Scriptures. One of the greatest dangers in a Christian's life is that salvation would grow cold and commonplace. And one of God's greatest means to keep salvation from growing cold and commonplace is that you would heat your heart with the words of Scripture. That you would take this book and read it and see Jesus saving that you would see God's heart for the world, his, the rebellious world, a rebellious you, that, that you would see that. And the only way to see that is in the scriptures. If you were to come to me and say, why should I read the Bible? I would tell you, because it is the only way to keep salvation from growing cold. This is where you get to see God saving. So may we be people who read this thing, right? who take the book and read it. We'll finish with these words from John Wesley. He said this, I have thought, and this is going to be a little bit uh, of crazy language here at the beginning. I have thought I'm a creature of a day passing through life as an arrow through the air. That's a little bit poetic, right? I'm a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf until a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I, am, I drop into an unchangeable eternity. Now listen, th those words are a little bit poetic, but those words are from a man that is close to death. I guarantee you, Iron Man on his deathbed at the beginning of this thing, right? I guarantee you, his thoughts were just like that. It is a moment away from me dropping into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. And here's the truth. You have it. May we be people who read it, who know it, who are soaked in it. Amen? Let's pray. I want to give you a minute just to sit in that. 
Maybe just even now you could start asking God to to press the wonder and the wow of salvation deep into you. That God has sent his son to rescue an ill-deserving people. Not just undeserving, but ill-deserving. So that you could honestly say the greatest thing in the world is to be saved. And when you start to feel that, I mean, feel that deep down in your bones. It affects everything you do in life. Everything you do. How you parent, your marriage, your work. So just just pray that God would God would press that deep into you. And one of God's primary ways that he's going to press that deep into your bones is by you taking up the Bible and you reading it. And so maybe this would be a good time for, you, for maybe you to repent of your neglect of reading the word and, and that we could just reaffirm together, God, make us a people of your book. Make us a people who, who love to see salvation play out in the words of Scripture. God, help us see Jesus throughout the scriptures. Now, I think there is this great invitation in here. If you haven't tasted that salvation, and for this to be a moment that that you throw your hands up in trust of God, saying, God, here is my life. It's yours and that you treasure God above all things. And at that moment, we trust and treasure God. That's the idea of biblical faith, of biblical belief. And the moment we do that, the Bible says he saves us. It's that free, but it is not cheap. He saves us at the cost of his son. So so maybe, maybe that would be an expression of your heart this morning toward God. And if so, God will save you. That thing that the angels love to look at, Luke 15, that they rejoice at, can happen in a moment this morning. And so God, will you, will you press this down? God, will you do this for us? God, will you make us a people who see that salvation is the greatest thing in the world? 
because, because it rescues us from your wrath and it delivers us to you and eternity with you, joy in you. And so God, I pray that that would be a weighty, a weighty reality for us. It would be an anchor for our life. God, and I pray as we, we've considered it this morning, that it would turn into some celebration for that. Yes. That, that we would live in amazement at that. That would be an energizing thing for us, yes. an empowering thing for us, to know that, that you have come down in the form of your son and rescued us. So, so God, I pray that it might affect things, that, that it might spur on this living hope. And it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.